Good evening. Mm-hmm. Always so funny to hear that. Uh, <laughs> think, who is that person? <laughs> I came by Edgewood tonight, <clears throat> and it was still light enough to see the carpets of, of yellow flowers all over those hills. It's so beautiful. Um, this has been such a, an incredible spring. Spring is always a surprise, I think. We, it, it always sort of knocks us off our feet just because it is what it is. But when it's as luscious as this, it certainly feels amazing. Where did all of this come from? Just out of the ground like that. We're about halfway between um, the Zen um, celebration of Buddha's birthday and the Vipassana and Vajrayana celebration of Buddha's birthday, which is in May. The Zen one is on the 8th of April, and it's only for the birthday. Um, We spread it out in Zen so that we celebrate the birthday in April, um, the Enlightenment in December, and uh, the death in February. And we have a retreat for each one of them. So we parse it out through the year. Um, But other flavors of Buddhism, and um, this one, this Vipassana practice, um, takes them and bundles them all up into one, one grand celebration. Of course, it would happen in spring. Of course, uh, all of these things being arbitrary, since we don't know when Buddha was born, <coughs> to choose spring makes perfect sense. Um, and the practices around it are about springtime. It's offerings of flowers. And it's, it's for little children, especially. So kids... In the Zen tradition, we have a baby Buddha about this tall, um, standing in a dish with a scoop and uh, sweet tea. And each one comes up and bows to the Buddha and offers poor sweet tea all over the Buddha. Kids love to do that. Um, And wish the world well. And... Uh, wish especially for uh, suffering that people know about in particular. Those who are sick, those who've been hurt, those who've lost somebody special. So it brings many different elements of our life together. There's a a very poignant sweetness to it um, because our life has so much pain in it and so much loss. Uh, Spring always has that kind of poignance in it. Um, We know, for one thing, that it won't last. Just like everything else, it won't last. And yet, it's so dear. There are several stories in the sutras about Buddha's birth. Uh, The favorite one is about the baby. Um, 
and the statue is the statue that we poured tea over is a baby with uh, one finger pointing up and the other one pointing down. Looks very strange, really, a little baby making a very unbaby-like gesture. The baby was supposed to have been born and immediately stood up and took seven steps around to sort of survey um, what was here. And then he said, above the heavens, below the heavens, I above am the I alone am the world honored one. <laughs> and you think, well, <laughs> talk about pride. <laughs> Until you think about what it's like when a real baby is born. And every baby comes out saying, Ta da! Here I am, full of vim and vigor, usually squalling and red in the face, ready to take on the world. (coughs) And each one is that, each one of us as we came out and saw the light for the first time. We're it. And yet, it comes, we come into a world of great difficulty at the same time. And so we uh, spend our life practicing to meet our difficulties as the world-honored one. How to do this, how to be this. There's another Buddha story about his birth, and that is when he... Um, <coughs> When he was born, a tremendously bright light shone all over, everywhere. Shone into places that had never had light ever, ever before. And in some of those deep cracks and crevices where no light had ever shone, beings looked around and for the first time could see. And they saw that there were other beings there with them with amazement. Oh, I'm not here all alone in the dark. We're all in here together. That's my favorite version of the story, actually. I think that has a very important teaching for us. And that the, the light that was shining of the Buddha's birth is the light that we sit about that this meditation practice itself is um, an expression of of the light of all things it's how we can see I've been reading a a very wonderful kind of beginner's book um, by Chogyam Trungpa's uh, son, who is now the the head teacher at Shambhala in in Colorado, the Vajrayana tradition. Um, It has very little Buddhism in it, but a whole lot of very good instruction on how to sit, um, how to make an ally of the mind 
a funny notion, isn't it? You think, oh, well, my mind is my friend, but not often it's not. Often it becomes a kind of worrisome, nagging presence that can be very irritating and upsetting. What is this poor mind? The, the first part of the book is just uh, the sitting instruction, the one that we can benefit from over and over again. Every time I give instruction, I always learn it all over again. It's so strange. You would think we would just slip into it, but it doesn't happen that way. Coming to sit is like that, too. It's, it, it's automatic on one side, and on the other side, it takes real intention, a real determination every single time. You know, in Zen, there's the notion of beginner's mind, that however long we practice and how, however much we know, we're always starting over. We're always beginning again. Because as soon as we get something nailed down, uh, everything changes. And then we're back to square one again. Because we're changing too. Continually changing. So the first and most important part is just to find a way to continually come back to this place and to this person. We get scattered, we get drawn out into a million different ways. And our sitting practice, if we, if we just sit for a few minutes every morning before we go racing out the door, that already brings us back to the place where we already are, consciously. And then it's much easier to, to act from this place, not out there somewhere. When we begin to sit, he likens our mind to a waterfall. He says it's just like sitting under a waterfall. There's so many thoughts just pouring through and pouring through. And of course, often people think, oh, I should turn off my mind. I should get rid of all my thoughts. And, of course, the harder you try, the more there are. Um, It's automatic, really. And you can't really erase your thinking. Uh, it's it's, It's an expression of our life, just like the beating of our heart is an expression of our life. But if we sit over and over again for longer, longer periods, shorter periods, but on a consistent basis, we become more and more able to return to the waterfall, you could say, instead of trying to go away from it or go away from where we are, go away from the things that irritate us, to just simply sit in the middle of all of it, to sit and relax in the middle of all of it. Sounds funny because this looks like such a kind of austere and fancy thing to do, but actually it's very simple and we can relax in it. Our own presence in the world, we can relax in that. 
befriend it, you could say, or allow it to befriend us. So Kyung uh, likens our sitting to learning how to ride a horse. And at first the horse is very, um, just, just spooks at every slightest thing. Um, or gets very interested in the green grass way over there and wants to go off the trail. And so it's a matter continually of just bringing the horse back, very gently and kindly. You never want to hurt a horse or be angry with it because that just creates a terrible tension and doesn't help, makes it worse. But if you kindly bring it back, and then as it goes away again, just bring it back again. And slowly, gently, kindly get to know what this is and to appreciate it. He talks about how self-conscious we are and how self-absorbed and how much of our uh, suffering comes because we are so um, almost obsessed with negative thinking about ourselves. And his first suggestion, which is always my first suggestion, is um, the practice of generosity, which is the first paramita in the bodhisattva six practices. Now, the bodhisattva is the enlightening being, the one that um, devotes, dedicates her or his life to um, helping everyone else. So generosity is the very first practice of a bodhisattva because it immediately gets one out of one's own angst and begins to uh, look around and see that there are other people. Say the Buddha's light is shining and you can wake up and see, oh yes, there are other people here with me. Ah, and they are hurting too. And so it's... um, our opportunity, practicing generosity, practicing all the various different kinds of giving that there are. Not just things. Things are probably the least of it, but um, paying attention, actually listening to other people when they're speaking. It's a tremendous gift. It's one of those things that we're all so hungry for, And it's one of those things that any of us can give. A Zen teacher says, even giving a blade of grass uh, or a grain of sand, the gesture itself breaks up some kind of hardness in our heart. Um, It makes us more present and more aware of what's actually happening. It gives us a kind of confidence as well. Just as our sitting gives us confidence, just spending a while not running around, not speaking, just sitting very quietly in the silence of... um, the peace of 
it is a gift to ourself. And that we give away as soon as we stand up. Not in any kind of self-conscious way at all, but just because of how we feel. It brings us back. And having come back, then we're present for everything and for everyone. It takes a long time to be completely one-pointedly present. Um, And it's important to let your mind find its own natural balance. Buddha said if, if if we're too intense about it, it's like a musical instrument that, you know, you're tightening up the strings of a violin, you'll snap the strings if you tighten them too tight. So don't try too hard. But you want to try. Trying is part of it too. And so that's the intention that brings us to. And not just to sit and uh, groove on the silence, you could say, or um, spin out... um, scenario after scenario and story after story. Of course, we do that. We're running movies in our heads all the time. My teacher used to say you could sometimes see flames licking at people's knees. (laughs) It gets really intense. (laughs) Or it gets really relaxed and you just sort of let the whole thing go. So it's important to find that 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 place. I often say we're where the vertical and the horizontal meet. And so actually meet right here at the hara, right in the belly. Um, We think everything's happening up here, but actually it's happening in the heart and the belly. They've just started discovering this in, um, in medicine. They're bundles of nerves in the heart and the stomach that um, are thinking nerves or emotional thought kind of things that um, all the great sages have known about for millennia, but they're just finding out, oh, oh, there really is something happening here. So in Zen, our instruction is always to put our mind in our hands and we hold our hands like this and that's very helpful when your mind is wandering just to drop all those thoughts down here oh I'll let let them just I'll just hold on to them (laughs) they'll wait for me it helps it helps to calm down that way another way is just to put the attention on the belly itself and the breathing that's probably the most useful, um, is just to return over and over to the breath. The breath is the most interesting thing because it's automatic, just like the heart. Whatever we do, we'll keep on breathing. Even if we hold our breath and turn blue, we'll fall down and then we'll start to breathe again, whether we want to or not. And yet, 
we can breathe ourselves if we want to. We can say, oh, I'm going to breathe real fast now, like we used to do as kids and hyperventilate just to see what it feels like. It's a very powerful feeling. Oh, I can run my breath. But on the other hand, uh, it goes by itself in a most amazing way, just as our heart is so amazing, and the whole system, the many systems of this, that are all so coordinated and so amazingly well-working, even after tens of years, it's still working. It goes until it doesn't go anymore. So tending to the breath was the first one of Buddha's teachings about sitting. He said, don't try to fiddle with it. Don't try to make your breath do what you think it should do. So first thing, get yourself out of the way and let your breathing be itself. It's one of the hardest things. You'd think it would be pretty easy. Cohen said it usually takes about 20 years to learn to breathe properly, (laughs) (laughs) which means to let, let it breathe itself. It's amazing. But even now, we can learn to practice um, just by attending to the breath and coming back to it over and over. Um, It's kind of like an exercise, you know, if you just do a few sit-ups, it's not going to do very much. But if we do sit-ups every day, um, it gets easier and easier, and we get stronger. And it's the same with the with coming back to the pre- being present with the breath, coming back to just being this. It gets easier and easier the more we do it. Kind of a, a mind muscle, I guess you could say. We talk about having a practice, um, and we talk about um, instructions, but actually the instructions are, are pretty simple. Um, notice what's going on and don't move around so much. And Coben used to say, try not to fall off the cushion. So, and the <laughs> Even that's pretty hard to do sometimes. <laughs> but um, Even that is pretty hard to do sometimes. The rest of it takes care of itself, including the smoothing out and the evening out and the balancing of the mind. Um, We can trust ourselves. And this practice is a practice of trusting ourselves. The fact that we've found a way to do this um, and find ourselves doing it and doing it here together in this way. It's a matter of great trust and confidence. We're very strong to be able to do this. It's very fine to be able to do it. So we can start out trusting ourselves, 
and start out with confidence. And then keep coming back and relaxing and trusting it. So I want to leave time for questions um, and discussion, if you like. It's usually people have questions that then open up a whole subject that I haven't covered. So please, anything that you would like to ask, this is a chance. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what the difference between attempting to concentrate and attempt, attempting to meditate. Can you elucidate on that? Or is that uh, yes. Yes. Oh, no, of course. Of course. That's very much in all our realm. And it is an interesting distinction. Um, concentration is in meditation, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a meditation. Uh, we concentrate every time we drive the car, or slice an onion, or solve a problem. All of those things are, are various kinds of concentrations, or samadhis we call them. Um, in Zen, we call meditation the concentration uh, or the king concentration, it's called sometimes, or the concentration of all concentration, in which you're not concentrating on anything. You're except just being, being present. So um, that's the difference. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, with a horse, if you pull too hard on it, its mouth gets hard, uh, and it's bad for the horse. Where the bit goes, yeah. And then it can't respond anymore. It doesn't feel it anymore. So that's the first one of the first things you learn about riding a horse. You don't pull on the reins. You just lay it against the, the neck of the horse. And it's intelligent. It knows what to do. So we can trust our intelligent mind. Thank you. That's a very good point.
struggle with the whole um, paying attention to my breathing. I have a tendency to maybe scare it or I get too close to it. So instead of it breathing me, it's like I'm like, shouldn't I be breathing more? (laughs) 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 It's like, isn't it time that I breathe? And then I'll wait and I'll wait. and And I know I'm changing it. And the only time that... I feel that I'm not strongly changing my, my breath by, by watching my breath is I'll wake up in the morning and my awareness mm-hmm. will be there before any controlling functions there and it's like yeah. oh yes. but otherwise it's it's just how can I mess up breathing? <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does help to exercise that first moment in the morning Mm -hmm. Um, and as you're drifting off to sleep at night you can feel it happening Uh, something lets go and um, just feeling that being aware of that is very helpful and not to worry about it you know Buddha says in that sutra if you're breathing a fast breath just let it be a fast breath and if you're breathing a slow one just let it be a slow one so if you find yourself breathing slowly just let it be that way and and it you, and it will change it always changes and sometimes as we sit we hardly breathe at all it's very strange it just sort of goes away and then sometimes something will hit us some kind of nervous system thing and we'll be breathing pretty hard and and if we try to say oh no I should be breathing a certain way a slowly more slowly or more fast then that that's interfering with it so just let it be really really almost no breath and um, see what happens Yes, well, that's the trick, is to pay attention to it and not control it. Yes, yes. It's a tricky business. Mm -hmm. One of the ways of describing sitting practice in Zen is to call it a stuck-down conduit. And you can think of yourself as a conduit for the breath. And if you take it out of your own physiology and and just experience it as a conduit, that's helpful too. Um, we personalize our breath and we try we possess it. It's like it's my breath, but actually it's not. It it comes from the trees and the grass. And as we breathe out, we're giving back to the trees and the grass. So if we take a much broader view, then it's not so difficult. It doesn't feel so tight and so narrow and so personal. Actually, all the things we think of as personal aren't nearly so personal as we like to think them.
see what you mean. Um, of course. Of course. It's not an it's not a cumulative um, affair. It's not that we sit and get better and better and better. Um, and so by the time we've been sitting for 35 years, which I've been doing, um, that you're an expert because it's the same thing. We're all doing the same thing. We're all completely equal in it. However long or short we've been doing it, it's still, it's still the same thing. So there's no attainment. We don't get anywhere. So you don't have to worry. Um, my grandchildren learn to sit. They came to the sit because I was taking care of them when they were about 10 or 12. And um, so you can start pretty young. But there's a famous Zen teacher who started at the age of 60, um, finally was given permission by his much younger teacher at the age of 80, and began teaching and taught until he was 120. So, uh, there's nothing to keep us from doing what we're doing. We don't know how long we have. Um, I'm in the same boat. I'm just about to have a birthday, and I, I'm thinking, oh, my word, there's so little time left. What? This is terrible. But actually, we have infinite amount of time. In terms of our practice, it's really an infinite amount of time because what we're doing is timeless. It's complete and timeless. So um, maybe younger people here than you and I will be gone before we are. But that's, that shouldn't stop anybody from doing anything. We should just go for it and go for it in big time. It's a fantastic life and a rare life and uh, we should make the most of it. Yes. half an hour um, on the Monday group that meets here they sit for 45 minutes I'm used to sitting for 40 minutes some groups sit for 50 minutes or one hour so
So it depends really on what group is sitting. And if you sit at home, you can create your own time. If you're just beginning, 10 minutes is a good time. Uh, if you're, if you, then you can add more minutes to it, maybe make it 15 and then 20. Half an hour in the morning and maybe half an hour in the evening, very helpful. It makes a, a sandwich out of the day. And it changes the day that way. So, and if, you're, if you don't have a schedule, um, you can just sit until you feel like getting up. And that's a very nice way to sit. So that your whole body and mind just naturally sits down and naturally gets up again without using the clock at all. So there are many ways to use time that way. But they have a little clock right here. (laughs) There's another one over there. of that is metta practice. You know, extending um, loving kindness into the world with your exhalation so that you you send loving kindness um, to, it's done with various rings, first to yourself, then to your dearest ones, then to the ones you don't really know, then to mm, strangers and enemies and then the whole vast world. And, and that's a kind of breathing practice also. Uh, and then you come back, you bring, bring it all back one by one so that you uh, end up back at yourself again. But that's another way of giving, uh, just sending your, your own kind thoughts outward, away from yourself. We've been sitting down for a long time. Um, Let's stand up for a minute and then sit down again. Stretching is very helpful. Before 
before we sit, and taking a deep breath or so before we sit is also very helpful in any kind of yoga. Some Zen, Zen temples have a yoga teacher, and sometimes a shiatsu teacher as well, so that people get their bodies attended to as well as uh, trying to stay on the cushion and not fall off. 